Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. We're rapidly approaching the end of the year, and Washington still has some pretty big items in the air. Congress is on track to raise the debt ceiling. There's the National Defense Authorization Act, the so-called China Bill, and of course, the Build Back Better Act. So on this episode of the AAF Exchange, we're going to talk today about what happens in 2021 and what's going to be punted to next year with AAF's Douglas Holtzakum. Doug, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Before we jump into everything, how are you been doing this time of year? It's the festive season, so... Um, I believe I have all my Christmas shopping done, so that that constitutes a major success. Um, And I'm looking forward to the holidays. It's going to be great. Yeah, I can't believe it that I've finished all of my shopping before I go home to Vermont and have to, you know, go pick up some last minute items because, oh, crap, I forgot to get you this present and and deliver until two months later. So, yeah, well, I'll probably remember something I should have done today and and make (laughs) us all move. But here we go. (laughs) So let's jump into things. Let's start with the big item. And that is, of course, the Build Back Better Act. This is, of course, the uh, the bill at the center of the Biden administration's agenda, it is or was getting all of the attention. Um, I feel like we've been talking about it for a long time. So where is this and what do we know? Um, we know that the House passed uh, version of Build Back Better will not pass the Senate. So they are undertaking to modify it. Uh, most of that has been done uh, because CBO is starting to issue cost estimates on titles by different committees of jurisdiction. Uh, but the, the notable outstanding committee is the Finance Committee, which is where all of the action is. That's where the drug pricing is. That's where the tax provisions are. Um, you know, that's that's where the paid leave program is going to be. And, and so the negotiations continue. There's also the issue of getting things past the parliamentarian. As, as we've discussed before, this is being done under reconciliation, special procedures to bypass filibusters in the Senate. Uh, only budgetary matters can be done under reconciliation. So some things like immigration provisions are probably going to come out. That process has the name a bird bath uh, after the late Senator Robert Byrd. And uh, the way that's done formally is that both sides, the Republicans and the Democrats, sit down with the parliamentarian and make their case, and then the parliamentarian decides. Not one of those bipartisan meetings has taken place yet. So they have to settle on provisions then do the bird bath to make sure they go past the parliamentarian. Then they'll have to issue cost estimates. Then they get to vote. All of that sounds to me like a fairly time-consuming process. Uh, they still intend uh, to do this before the Christmas break, but it's not going to be this week. That's for sure. That vote will take place next week at the earliest. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like there's still a lot of procedural hoops to get through. a lot of different, um, I mean, political hoops, too, because it doesn't seem like every senator is on board yet on the Democratic side. So still a long way to go for that process. There was something that happened on Friday that I I asked you about um, in person and I want to bring up now, and that's the CBO released um, a letter with the analysis of several scenarios for uh, uh, the Build Back Better Act. Would you walk us through what we learned from that letter? Sure. Uh, When the Build Back Better Act was uh, passed by the House, the CBO put out a cost estimate, which said that it raised uh, about $1.3 $1.3 trillion in um, revenue. It, it spent a little over $1.6 trillion on the new programs and created a deficit of $367 billion over the next 10 years. That's the 
the plain reading of the text of the bill, which is what CBO scores. Uh, the ranking members of the budget committees in both the Senate, Lindsey Graham, and the House, Jason Smith, sent a letter to CBO and said, look, that bill has a whole bunch of programs which sunset in a year or two years and, and don't extend for the full 10-year budget window. What would happen to that cost estimate if we extended all of them, about 17 of them, for the full 10 years? Answer, uh, you spend a lot more money um, instead of uh, the the 1.6, you, you spend about 4.6 and you raise the, the deficit by $3 trillion. And so that raises the possibility of the intent of the, the Democrats being to have those programs be permanent and to have much larger structural deficits, or Democrats have asserted, we will in fact um, pay for those programs if we choose to extend them. But that means that you've got another $3 trillion in tax increases in the future. That's, that's you know, roughly triple what's in there now. And so the, both of those are dramatic changes in how you think about the bill. Yeah, it seemed like that those short budget windows and, of course, CBO couldn't look at them originally, as you mentioned to me. Um, and now we got better information about the long term implications of some of these programs. Yeah, just to clarify CBO's role here, I mean, they, by law, cannot make um, policy um, uh, advice. I mean, they can't. So so th if they were to put out something that extended it for 10 years, it would look like they were saying, you know, you really should have this be a full 10 year uh, program. So they, they do nothing except do the cost estimate for whatever's in front of them. And what was in front of them was a letter with explicit instructions on which things to extend and which to not. And so that's what you got. Interesting. Let's talk about the child uh, tax credit. Progressive Democrats really want this. It seems to be their big, their big item that they're really pushing for. Any chance the Democrats make a move to pass this separately outside of BBVA? There's been some talk about that. Um, you know, the, the, the credit has been around for a while. Uh, it got modified dr dramatically in the American Rescue Plan in March of, uh, of this year. And that uh, modification made it much richer, $3,000 per child, $3,600 if, if you're under six. Uh, and it also did it in advance. We're sending monthly checks to about 90% of American families. So uh, that extension is very important to the Democrats, and it lapses on December 31st. They really don't want to see it lapse for substantive reasons. It's the policy they prefer. They want those checks to continue um, for political reasons. You know, once it goes away, maybe it doesn't come back and, and they have a problem. Uh, so there's been some talk about passing through the House, which would happen fairly straightforwardly, uh, an extension of it, and then daring the Republicans in the Senate to, to vote it down and, and, and oppose sending these checks to America's children. That's the basic politics of it. Obviously, that depends on what happens with Build Back Better. And so uh, that's, a, that's a Hail Mary after Build Back Better fails to, to get through the Senate. 90% seems like a, it would have a big economic impact. It's, it's the biggest single program in there. And you know, extending it for 10 years adds another $1.6 trillion to the bill. So of that $3 trillion, it's over half. So th this is a, uh, a very important um, a policy move. And... You know, the concerns from an economic point of view really fall into a couple of buckets. Bucket number one is this is just cash up front. So that's like sending out checks as we've done in the past. That's stimulus. And do we really need that right now? Short answer, no. We've got an inflation problem. We don't really need stimulus. So that's a concern. B, um, it is not particularly well designed in my view. It's, uh, you get the same credit for someone who makes $10,000 as someone who makes $100,000 and means testing it to make it 
more accurately reflect the need of the, the family and the children in it would seem like a sensible step. And then bucket three is people worry about the labor force participation impact. This is a lot of money that comes without any tie to work. And indeed, the concern is that this will actually diminish uh, participation in the labor force at a time when we're seeing uh, that happen already. So, you know, it's not an uncontroversial um, uh, program for those reasons. What about the state and local tax, commonly referred to as the SALT deduction? Congress is debating whether to raise the cap on, on SALT. What is the latest on this? Yeah, the, the, the current uh, situation is you have a $10,000 cap, uh, but that cap expires, right? It goes away after a, a number of years. And so the game is pretty simple. Right now we raised the cap to say 80,000, that's what the House did. But instead of having it go away, you put the cap in place in the out years. And so you've made it a, a big tax cut up front, but a big tax increase in the, out, in the tail end, and, and you can have it be roughly revenue neutral over the 10 year window. So the games are how much upfront does it go up and where do you bring it down to in the, the tail end? That's that's part of it. And that, and that's reflecting real differences in philosophy. There, there are those like Senator Bernie Sanders who just think it's unconscionable to provide a tax break to the most affluent Americans. We can't do that in this bill. And then there are those in the affected states, New Jersey having been the leader in the House saying, look, it's, it's fix this or, or bust. We're not going to vote without it. So it, the politics have been pretty tough. Interesting. So there's been a lot of talk, at least there's been a lot of commercials. I feel like every other commercial on my Hulu has been about this government prescription drug price negotiations. Um, what's going on with this? Uh, well, as you know, there's a, a long policy history here now. So for two years, the Democrats have had a, a bill known as H.R. 3 that would have uh, subjected every uh, drug uh, in America potentially to negotiation by the secretary of HHS. Um, and that negotiation would be enforced by uh, an, uh, an excise tax of 95% that, that, that says if you don't um, negotiate in good faith and the Secretary of HHS gets to decide that, we can tax your domestic sales at 95% and that would effectively take it out of the market. So what came out of the House in principle looks a lot less dramatic than that. Uh, the Secretary of HHS could negotiate uh, initially the price of 10 drugs um, in a parts D or B, so that's either the outpatient or the inpatient. Those would have to be drugs that were off their patent protection, so they're not the newest, most expensive drugs. And the negotiation would start it with a, a sort of a target range that's something about between 40 and 60% of their average manufacturer price, and then you go from there. It would, however, still be enforced by the same 95% excise tax. Uh, and that's, that's a pretty dramatic um, policy tool to put into play. And over time, more um, uh, drugs, first 15, 15, then 20, would be eligible for this. And there'd be some you know, impacts on innovation, probably. On, uh, it, it would affect the competition for generics, which has been a big success in the United States. So you're, you're about to launch a generic drug because you have something that's no longer on patent protection, and suddenly its price gets cut by about 40 or 50 percent. What are you going to do? Well, you might not get into that business. So it, it's still a fairly dramatic impact of that negotiation. And, and so, you know, we're going to see what comes out of the Senate. I, I don't see a big move to change that. Um, those are drugs restricted to government programs. The other important feature in there is something called inflation taxes. If you raise the price of a drug higher than the average rate of inflation, uh, all of the difference goes to the government. Right? So it's essentially a 100% tax on any revenue you get by raising prices faster than general inflation. 
that would apply to every drug in America. So the commercial market as well, not just government programs. That's a pretty important uh, provision as well. So it, while it's less dramatic than what we've seen for the past two years, these are still really significant changes in the way we think about drug pricing. Probably something we'll be watching into next year as, as the election. Dallas, yes. Uh, taking over. On the debt ceiling, after a truly confusing process, it looks like congressional Democrats are set to pass an increase to the debt ceiling. Um, we're recording this on, tu- on a Tuesday, so this vote might have happened by the time it hits listeners. Um, but would you explain how they were able to get to this point? Um, and how long will it be before Congress needs to do this again? So the um, the way they got here is they passed a joint resolution in both the House and the Senate. Joint resolutions have to be signed by the president as well. And so they passed something which essentially said, if the House presents the Senate with a clean debt limit increase, which literally means we're going to raise the debt limit by X and you insert the number that you want, uh, it can be considered under special protections, um, 10 hours of debate, so no filibuster, up or down vote. That's it. And there's a short window in which this can occur, essentially, this week. And uh, th- that's really a joint resolution that has special rules for the Senate for this one, one kind of vote. Now, they toss into it some other things about avoiding Medicare cuts and, and some, some pay-go cuts. They'd have to do cuts to programs to give it some cover on both sides. But that was the essence of this special procedure. So that's passed. It's been signed into law. Today, uh, we will see votes on the debt limit, presumably in both the House and the Senate, but over the course of the day, and this will all be done. Today is December 14th, uh, as we record this. Recall that Secretary Yellen uh, told Congress that uh, it had to be done by the 15th or they were going to run into cash flow problems. So, you know, they're they're coming in just under the wire and it looks like it will be successful, but uh, fingers crossed until it's actually done. Yeah, there are two other items on the must-do list for Congress. Um, that's the National Defense Authorization Act, and then the so-called China Bill. What's going on with these bills? Uh, the National Defense Authorization Act um, is something which, on a bipartisan basis, Congress has always done for sixty odd years. It's never missed uh, this um, important sort of scoping of our uh, military capabilities. It looks like again today the Senate will vote to end all debate on the bill and move to a a vote for final passage, which means they intend to get it done before uh, leaving town and then presumably go to the president, be signed, uh, and it's all over but the the details. Um, That comes, you know, after a year-long debate on what's in there, including some things that have nothing to do with the military. Because this is something that seems to get passed every year, it's it's acquired the the must-pass label, and that means it becomes a target for anything you want to attach to it to get across the finish line. Um, so th- that's why it's taken so long. But I think that one's, that one is probably going to get done. Majority Leader Schumer passed out of the Senate the so-called China Bill. It's the uh, U.S. Competitiveness Act. It, uh, is, is meant to strategically compete with China, provide some capabilities, uh, economic and otherwise, in the U.S., um, support chip production, AI development, things like that. The House didn't take the Senate version. It has its own version. Uh, getting that done would require them to come to an agreement. And both have, I, I don't think that makes it over the finish line. The, the, they're running out of time. He, he may want to get it done, but I don't think he's got enough pull to, to get it done in both House and Senate and get before the end of the year. There are a couple of other items I want to get to before we you know look ahead to next year. The first being uh, the Unified Agenda came out recently. What did we learn from all that? Uh, the unified agenda is, is the administration laying out its plans for major 
regulatory moves. So what, what big rulemakings? And, you know, th there are some uh, some notable ones. Uh, they're planning to do two rules on the waters of the U.S. Um, this is a, a perennial uh, flashpoint in the regulatory structure. You know, if, if you've got a, a navigable water, um, then it has to be uh, regulated by uh, the Clean Water Act and, and the Environmental Protection Agency gets jurisdiction, Interior gets some jurisdiction, and there's a big regulatory burden that comes with it. And, and so what constitutes a protected water is, is a big deal. During the Obama years, uh, a, a, a new definition of uh, what constituted a water under the act was put in place and, and a, a firestorm erupted. Uh, you know, it was marshland that really wasn't navigable. Why is this being regulated? It's taking over every farm and putting them under their jurisdiction. Trump administration did another one. Now here we're going to have uh, a new waters of the U.S. Then they're going to do some comment. Then they're going to do another one. And why don't just just do a long comment period? And one rule is actually a mystery to me. But, but that's one of the big things that's going on out there. The, the other major things are really in the Department of Labor, where they're they're going to once again do an overtime rule. This harkens back to the Obama era when when they did all the joint employer overtime. You name it. That the same rulemakings are are, are being undertaken by the Biden administration. Interesting. Yeah, it seems like we're just replaying the old playbook from, from the Obama years and just bringing it forward again. Yeah, I mean, you could take the, the whatever outline you had for the regulatory structure and just check the same boxes. It looks exactly the same. <laughs> you know, we're coming up on the end of the year, so let's go big picture. What have we learned about the economic recovery from the pandemic uh, and the federal government's response to it over the past year? We're facing record inflation, supply chain challenges, and labor shortages. Uh, most Americans aren't feeling positive. Um, I think I saw some news report about the misery index being high despite strong economic growth. So where are we and where, where are we headed? Well, I think we uh, relearned a lesson that we should have learned from the outset, which is that the ultimate economic policy is to be successful in combating the virus. And... Um, and until the the coronavirus is not a pandemic threat, but is rather just a nuisance on the on the world stage, um, we will we will continue to struggle um, because it is the source of all of the problems. Uh, second thing we've learned is, you know, economists have two hands because there's both supply and demand. Uh, most of the things that Washington reflexively does cut interest rates, buy uh, treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, and do quantitative easing send checks out, uh, all of that stuff uh, works on the demand curve and the supply curve has been the issue. Um, the, number one, you have the virus inhibiting the capacity of people to work, that's a supply constraint. One man's labor shortage is another person's supply chain difficulty. And so you, you go global with all these, these uh, uh, labor outages, pretty soon you have a supply chain that's just not functioning and you can't even monitor very well where you are in that supply chain. And we, we've seen a lot of that recently and then the third is, you know, the, the old lesson that look at the intersection. Um, if you've got supply problems, don't pump up demand because that generates inflation. And that's what the American Rescue Plan did. And now we're dealing with the fallout. And we're seeing the Fed realize it's got to actually work to, to slow the growth of demand instead of push it further. And, and they're, they're doing a U-turn even as we speak. Today is a meeting of the Federal Reserve. It's a two-day meeting. We'll find out tomorrow in their statement just how dramatically different their language is and their strategy is going forward. Two final questions for you. First, what are the key things to watch in 2022? And second, what are you most looking forward to in the coming year? Well, uh, 
key things to, to look at are really, I think, the outlook for inflation. You know, the administration continues to believe that a lot, not all of this inflation will, in fact, dissipate relatively quickly. No one seems to know what word to attach to that anymore. But uh, we should see that start to happen early next year if they're going to get any relief in time for the election. And, and next year is an election year and uh, the inflation is currently a, a potent political uh, issue. Does it remain so is, is really a key question. I'm, I'm watching that. It's also an important economic question. The things the Fed does take time. The Fed can tame inflation, but it can't tame inflation quickly without risking a recession. And so um, how much of it goes away on its own, I think, is, is the number one economic issue going forward. Uh, second one I'd look for in terms of the economics is, you know, how rapid will be the private sector growth? We're not going to need any more sim stimulus. H how quickly will the economy grow left to its own devices? And uh, I expect, uh, you know, something that looks like four, four and a half percent real growth, um, very strong. Uh, but, you know, th th it could be even more rapid if we get some productivity gains, if we get people coming back to work. We don't know if, if those two are going to happen. And so that'll determine the top line numbers. Things I'm looking forward to for the most, well, I'm going to take a cruise with my wife. We're going to go to, to Spain and, and uh, learn a little bit about uh, Spain. I've never been there. Uh, I'm going to have a, a first birthday party for my granddaughter, and I'm looking forward to resuming those parts of life, seeing the family, going on a cruise, and uh, of course, every day to AAF will be a joy. I'm sure when you go on your cruise, Spain, you'll be trying all of the local vineyard wines and things like that to, to really help you... Uh, expand your wine interests. I'm just here for international diplomacy, trying to raise the demand for those wines as a matter of our helping Spain. That's it. Doug, thank you for joining us. I hope you have a great holiday season, and I look forward to continuing our conversations in 2022. Thank you, and uh, my best holiday wishes to everyone who's listening. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.